Secondly, how many of you have a Siddur? Otherwise, this lecture won't have a prayer. <laughs> I want you to turn to page 110. Okay, if you're walking around Orange County, and you walk in front of a house of worship, and on the marquee which fronted the house of worship, it said, the sermon next week will be, God loves you. How many would assume they're walking in front of a Christian house of worship? And how many would assume they're walking in front of a Jewish house of worship? So the vast majority, if it said, God loves you, what do you assume? You're walking in front of a Christian house of worship, correct? Now I'll turn to page 110. This is the Siddur the synagogue uses all the time. Most synagogues use something like it or a variety of it. On page 110, fourth paragraph in the bottom in English, what is the first five words? It says, Deep is your love for us. Everybody see that? Now, how many would describe this as a Christian book of prayer? It's the gates of prayer. How many? How many have ever seen this prayer before? It comes right before the Shema. Has anybody seen the Shema before? Raise your hand. Okay. How many have seen this prayer before? It comes right before it. How many have said it more than five times? Right? I don't want to go beyond that. So some of you have said this more than five times. You get up in the morning, you come to the synagogue, and you say, Deep is your love for us, and therefore you're all adobbed, what? You all pray as what? As Christians. One of the most peculiar phenomena in American Judaism is all the good ideas in religion are given to Christianity, and the leftovers we take and ask why it doesn't attract us. One of the second amazing phenomena is the number of Jews who every single morning say, deep is your love for us, and you say, God loves you, and they call it what? Christian. I was given the same talk in an Orthodox synagogue not long ago. I said, how many of you know this prayer? Everybody raise their hand. I said, how many of you said it twice a day for 10 years? Everybody raise their hand. I said, I mean, the average person has said this about 8,000 times in this room. And if I say what it means, you all think it's what? Christian. So how do you explain the lack of penetration of Jewish prayer into the Jewish heart? I don't know. If I were a cardiologist, I would investigate it. <laughs> but I can't figure out. It's the same things everywhere you go. Now, if you look at the prayer, so our question today is, first place, why do Jews think that what Christians say is Christian when they got it from where? Oh, by the way, if I say God is one, would you say Christianity or Judaism? Judaism. Oh, that you would say, right? So if it's the first line of the Shema, you'll agree that it's Jewish. And if it's the second line of the Shema, you begin to what? Waver. Interesting phenomenon. Okay, let's see. Now, what is the difference between Jews and Christians saying God loves you? Actually, they both make the same argument. Not only that, they make it the center of the Siddur. Let's look at the analysis and see how the Jews construct the argument. Let's compare to how the Christians construct the argument and ask the question, what's the difference? Okay? We're now on page 110 at the bottom. It says, deep is your love for us. In the Hebrew it says, Ahabar Rabbah Aftani. Basically the exact same thing. Now, how do we make the argument in Judaism that God loves you? How do they make the argument of Christianity? What does Christianity say? What's their argument? Their argument is that God's only begotten Son, in Greek called monogenos, was sacrificed for whom? 
for your sins. And they consider that what? A great act of love. I say that because the first job I was ever offered in a university was at Notre Dame University in Indiana as a professor of religion, not a quarterback. <laughs> After the interview, I was put up that night in a monastery. So I was in a monastery, right? And I was on my bed. And at nighttime, I started saying, Kriya Shema, the Shema, before I go to bed. And I looked up, and I saw some Jew on the wall. <laughs> and I felt very ill at ease because he was only partially mad. <laughs> so I thought, I can't say Shema when a fellow Jew is suffering. So I took him off the wall, put him in the bed next to me, covered him up properly, and then, of course, had the, had the spaciousness to pray. And, of course, he was well taken care of. But nonetheless, that's the argument made. The argument is made is that if God really loved you, what would he do? He would sacrifice even what? His son for your sins. Now, if someone came and told you, so-and-so was killed because of your sins, and that is evidence that so-and-so loves you, it's a powerful argument. What would you do to reciprocate? How do you compensate for that? What do you do to respond to that? Give me a type of kind of an equivalent action, since most actions in social relations are based on a quid pro quo. So if that's the quid, what's your quote? An interesting question, what you would do. And when you can't meet it, what's the difference? Now just compare that with the page in front of you. The page in front of you, let's construct the argument. So what I'm going to ask you to do, I'm going to get you to count off. And every table, go one, two, one, two. Around. Here, start here. One, go around. Two. One, two. All the way around. And the table, do the same thing. That table, turn the second table, third table, back. Two. Go all the way. Just count off. Okay. Everybody who's a, who call themselves a one, raise your hand. Next to you, you should find a two. Okay? This I got from a little play called Matchmaker, Matchmaker, Make Me. Right? Okay. Now, one and two get together, and you're going to read together at the bottom of page 110. If you can't figure out the English, look back at the Hebrew. Okay? And my question is going to be, what is the argument, that is, how does Judaism try to persuade you, that is you the worshiper praying person, that you are an object of divine love? So look at this paragraph at the bottom of the page, either Hebrew or English. Read it to each other, one paragraph by paragraph. And then engage in conversation. What is the argument? By saying, what is the argument? How are they persuading me of the validity of the case? Okay? One, two, one, two. Read to each other. Let's begin. Engage in conversation. When the two of you agree, what is the argument that Judaism makes that God loves you? Raise your hand. Let us begin. Okay, let us engage in collective conversation of this together. Anybody reach a consensus? Raise your hand. You came to a conclusion? Anybody come? You came to a conclusion? Right? You came to a conclusion? Did you agree on the conclusion? Or you agreed to disagree on the conclusion? Because nothing causes more disagreement than love. Right? Okay, let's look at this together. Starts off. Deep is your love for us. That is your contention. That's your thesis. Now normally what you do is, you summarize the thesis in the very last line. Okay? So if you look in the Hebrew, it has a bracha. The very last line of the Hebrew says, Baruch, Ata, Right, that's the blessing. And then it says, Habocher Bamo Yisrael, who chooses his people Israel, Be Ahava, in love. That's his thesis. 
In other words, what a blessing does, it t- starts off with a theme. It tells you its thesis, its conclusion. What is the function of the blessing? An elaboration of that theme to persuade you that by the time you come to the conclusion, you share in that conclusion. So this prayer is trying to persuade you, not only that God chose you, but the motivation for choosing you was what? Love. He could have chosen you out of many different reasons. But they're arguing here, the motivation for choosing was out of love. Now the question is, how do you construct an argument? How do you persuade somebody that they are loved in this theological context? So it says in English, deep is your love for us, abiding is your compassion. From of old, which means our forefathers, have put our trust in you. Okay? Then the Hebrew adds three words. You have a bit of what is called an expurgated edition. And I want to present the unexpurgated edition because most of you are over 17. So if you don't mean want to listen, it's okay. Okay? I did that just to get make sure you would listen. <laughs> From of old, we put our trust in you. And then the Hebrew adds two words. Look at the Hebrew, the third line. It says, the third line says, Third line, first word. And you taught them. So what's the argument? How do we know that God loved our forefathers? Because what did he do? Because he taught them. That's quite an amazing image. The assumption in the Jewish understanding, if you really love somebody, what do you do? You teach them. Now there are quite a few metaphors that Judaism uses for love. There could be, and almost all of them were borrowed from, human relations. So if you want to use a model of human relations for the divine human relationship, and you want to talk about love, what would be the most one one would most rapidly borrow from? The most common one is a romantic image. And said, and God loves you like a husband loves his wife, or vice versa. For example, Lechad Dodi says, let us go out. As God goes out, I mean, we should, we should greet God on the Sabbath, like a groom greets his bride. That's very common. Or you could use a parental image, saying, God loves you like what? A mother or a father loves her or his child. That's your most common. Almost all Western religions are use it very popularly. Either a romantic image, and the image is husband-wife, borrowing from human experience, or a parental image, father-child, mother-child. What is unique here is not parental, and not connubial, rather what? The evidence of love is what? Pedagogic. Now, of course, if I use a metaphor and say, God loves you like a husband loves his wife, what does it assume you know about? That you've experienced this idea of a husband what? Loving his wife. Otherwise, it makes no sense. If I say, God loves you like a mother loves a child, what's the assumption? That you know what that is? What a mother loves a child, and you derive from that and extrapolate to the other. But if you never experienced parental love, the metaphor wouldn't work for you. If you never experienced or saw romantic love, it wouldn't work for you. In other words, a metaphor with regard to the divine human relationship can only work if it's anchored in a human-human relationship. Okay? So if I say, God loves you, right? Like a teacher loves his students, what's the assumption? That many of you had what? Loving teachers. It's one of the most fantastic understandings of Judaism. Because if people have not had loving teachers, the metaphor what? Wouldn't work. And what's the assumption? If you really love somebody, you do what? You teach them. Now what do you teach them? 
So if you look at the English, third line, what do you teach them? The laws of life, which is a literal translation of the Hebrew. Look at the Hebrew third line, second and third word. It says, and you taught them, the laws of life. Then the Hebrew says, similarly, have grace upon us. And how do you express your grace upon us? By teaching us. So, if you love them, what did you do? You taught them. And if you loved us, what would you do? Teach us. What do you teach us? The laws of life. Now think about this. The more you love somebody, the more you do what? You tell them how to run their lives. Think about this. I repeat again. The more you love somebody, the more you tell them what? How to run their lives. In fact, people who love somebody cannot hold back advice. Whether it's desired or not. And since your motive is love, you're amazed that the recipient doesn't accept it that way. Try it on a teenage daughter. Right? Now, but it's, a, it's just a remarkable phenomenon. I'll say again. The more you love somebody, and, the, and you got some really good advice, you can't what? You can't hold back. Right? And there's, by the way, there's almost no correspondence between the motive of love and receiving in love until after the age of 81. <clears throat> so he says here, amazing, you have taught us the laws of life. Now normally the word would be with Talamdain, you taught us what? The normal word in the Sidur, as a normal word in the Bible, would not be laws of life. They would say the word Torah. So it normally would say, and you taught them Torah. Therefore what? Teach us Torah. Here though, that's what's remarkable. Instead of using the word Torah, they want you to conceptualize the Torah as what? The laws of life. And what does the laws of life do? Tell you how to run your life. And the point is, and it's a very deep psychological insight, the more you love somebody, the more you do what? You want to give them advice, not in general, but about them what? The most essential things. And you want them to avoid the mistakes that you went through. It never works. <laughs> but you'll never stop. Because to stop would mean what? To stop loving. That's the way it is. It's almost a catch-22. Maybe catch-33. Anyhow. Now, so therefore God loves you. Therefore what does He do? He teaches you. What does He teach you? The laws of life. Now how would you know that to be true? So if you look at the very next line, it says, Be gracious now to us, that we may understand. That's interesting. Now the Hebrew has, not only understand, has about eight or nine words for understanding. So look at the Hebrew, those who can follow with me. I'm now in line four in the Hebrew. It says, V'tein b'libenu. Line four, word four. V'tein b'libenu, I'm translating, put in our heart, l'avin, l'askil, l'ishmoa, I'm on line five, and all these are words for understanding, doing, fulfilling. A lot of them are synonymous. And then it says, all the words of your Talmud and your Torah. And now look at one, two, three, four, five, six. Word two. The second word says what? That we should do all these what? In love. Here now the word in love, bi'ahava, who is doing the loving? In the opening line is quite clear that we are the objects of divine love. That is, God loves us. 
Now he says, you gave these laws of life. Were you to teach us to really understand the Torah, so the argument goes, and were we to really to fulfill them, what conclusion would we come to? Nobody would give me such a wonderful gift unless what? Right? Many people give you gifts perfunctory. But the people who love you the most always choose a gift which is what? Appropriate to you. The more thought behind the gift, the more you think the gift is a gift of what? Of love. So if this love, life, if this gift you gave me really helped me to run my life and I see the benefits of it, that's it. My God, well, I wouldn't say that, but I'd say what? Right? Why did this person go out of his way to give me what? Such a what life engendering gift. And that's what? They really cared about me. Now, who is the easiest person to love in the world? The easiest person to love in the world is the person that you are convinced loves you. First, you can't help but admire their taste. <laughs> Secondly is, it is a lot more, it's very difficult to initiate love. It's always a very, it's a big risk. You could fall flat on your face. So what's easier, to initiate love or to reciprocate love? It's always easy to reciprocate. Not only that, when you feel loved, it's easier to what? To respond in love. You see, kids who never experienced love, they only calculate their relationships. It's always what? On a quid pro quo, on a calculating relationship. And therefore, a loved kid frequently engenders a love-giving kid. That is, the experience of love cultivates the capacity to reciprocate. So he comes along and says, Next line. For Hawaii Inano, now line six. Enlighten our eyes in your Torah and make our heart cleave to your mitzvot. So now we get two things here. One is a study of Torah, to which the prayer argues if you really understood the Torah and your eyes were enlightened in it, number one. Two, if you really cleave to the mitzvot and follow the ways of life, what conclusion would you come to? Nobody would give me such a wonderful Torah which guides me so well in, the, in, the, in life, unless what? They really cared about me. Now, when you really feel cared about, what can you do? You can respond in love. Now, look at the very next line. I'm in the Hebrew. Count with me. One, two, three, four, five, six. Line seven. Everyone see line seven? Okay. Now, line seven in the Hebrew is the same thing in the English, the second paragraph, the last line. There it says, Unite our hearts to love and to revere your name. Everybody see that? Now this verse actually comes from the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms though, one word has been changed and it's been moved from the singular to the plural. In the book of Psalms it says, which in the English reads, Unite my heart then it jumps the next word and goes, Lira, to revere your name. So what did the poet do here? He took a prepared verse which says, Unite my heart to what? Revere your name. What word does he add? He has the word love or ahava. So when you have something which is familiar, and then you suddenly introduce an unfamiliar element, which of the true, which of the two, attracts your attention more. The unfamiliar. 
So clearly, if I'm used to that verse, unite my heart to revere your name, and I say it over and over again from the book of Psalms, and then you suddenly say to me, unite my heart to, re- to revere and to love your name, what word stands out? To love. So it's quite clear. I'm asking you, God, help me love what? You. And how do you help me by loving you? By teaching me the Torah. Getting me to what? Comply with his ordinances of life. When I go through that process, I would say what? Anybody who's done that must really what? Love me. And now I'm in an easier position to do? Reciprocate divine love. And therefore I come to the very last line, and that's the conclusion. Baruch Praised are you, O Lord, who chose his people Israel. What's the very last word? In love. In ahava. So it turns out, the very first word in the prayer is what? Ahava, which is love. The last word in the prayer is what? Ahava. And if you count, you'll find in Hebrew, the middle word in the prayer is ahava. So clearly this is a prayer saturated with what? Ahava. The vast majority of the words of love go from God to humanity. Although once it goes where? From humanity to God. Now my question is, why is this prayer placed here? Well, because it comes right before what? Page 111. In many Shidori, by the way, 110 precedes 111. So let's look at page 111. 111 has a biblical commandment which says, you shall love the Lord your God. Okay? It appears in Hebrew on 111. appears in English on 112. Okay? Now the question is, the Bible says you're supposed to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Well, that's a pretty difficult what? Task. Secondly is, do you really think if you commanded somebody to love, they would love? Okay, everybody start loving. Right? A lot of you feel very uncomfortable, right? What do you do when someone says that? Do you translate it into emotion? Or do you translate it into behavior? Right? If it's something you do, I can do it. If it's something I'm supposed to feel, you really think by commanding, you get me what? To feeling it or not? Fascinating question. So what the Bible says is, you're supposed to love the Lord your God. What the Siddur does is try to make the Bible, the Torah, doable. Fascinating. You constantly it will take a biblical thesis and say, what is the educational task to allow this goal to become what? Doable. So it says, I'm going to tell you the prayer which is trying to persuade you that you are an object of divine love. Now that you are an object of divine love and feel loved, what can I ask you to do? Reciprocate. Okay? That's a lot different than what? Initiate. Because if you feel love, you can do what? It gives you sometimes the capacity if you make the effort to respond. So let's look at this paragraph of the Shema and see if we can figure out what it means. It starts off in the Hebrew, or you can look in the English on page 111 or 112. But almost since every Sidu, every show that I know says this paragraph in the Hebrew, let's focus upon it. It starts off, V'yahavta. Which, interesting enough, in the Hebrew is the singular. I underscore that because in English, it's hard to distinguish. Many languages do. Old English does with ye, but we just say what? You, right? Even hey you could be in the singular. So it says, you shall love the Lord your God. Not what? So follow closely. The opening line of the previous prayer says, with great love have you loved us. That's in the plural. 
But you can't love God with your father's heart. It would cause cardiac arrest. Here it has to be what? With your own. So fascinating, it's in the singular. Even though the Shema itself is in the plural. Fascinating. And it says, Fihafta, you shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your nefesh, and with all your ma'od. Now I didn't translate the last terms in English, and I'll tell you why. Because these words are very difficult in Hebrew. It says, We normally translate lave as heart. And if you turn it over in English, it says what? The light, you shall love your eternal God with all your heart. The trouble with that is, the word lave in the Bible is frequently the seat of intelligence. We say lave mevin, an understanding lave. We say in Hebrew, lave madat. It's the heart, the lave, which knows. So in biblical physiology, the lave is a source of what? Understanding. In rabbinic psychology, the lave is a source of passion. So it turns out we have a word which in its biblical context focuses upon the mind and its rabbinic context focuses upon what? The passions. So the rabbi said, what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your lave? Just say your lave. What do you mean? And if I got a transplant heart, I don't have to do it? So it means, with, they say with all your lave means, even with the part of the lave you would normally exclude. What is the part of the lave you would normally exclude, they say, is the yetzahara. Man's passion, which if uncontrolled, is frequently destructive. So for example, sexual passion, uncontrolled, can be destructive. If it's controlled, it's constructive. It is so constructive, most of you are the results of it. <laughs> well, it's constructive, right? That's how you came into being. Right? That's called constructive use of that passion. There also can be, well, you know that, I don't have to mention to you. Okay? Now, next one is, Bechol nafshecha with all your nefesh. In biblical Hebrew, the word nefesh means body. It's like, for example, if you go to Cambridge, they have a place called All Souls College. And they'll sometimes say, take attendance, there were 200 souls in the room. A soul is not a disembodied person. Right? A soul in Old English meant what? A person. Similar in Hebrew. The word nefesh means person, but it means an embodied person. Later developments in Hebrew, the word nefesh meant soul. So now we have a, pers- a, a word, the word nefesh, which has two dimensions. Body to what? To soul. Just as lave has two dimensions, from mind to emotion or passion. Now let's get to the third word. It says, Bechol Meodecha. Now the English, if you turn it over, this translation says, with all your being. Okay, interesting. Now the word Maod means very. That's all it means, very. So most commentators say, what does Meodecha mean? Bimaod Maod, very, very much. Nonetheless, there are two different divergent interpretations in the history of biblical interpretation. Some translate ma'od with all your might. That's the most common one. And that follows the Greek translation of the Bible, which says there, dunamis. Modecha means with all your might. So most English translations of the Siddur will say, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's the most common one. And they follow the Septuagint, the Greek translation. The rabbi said, Modecha 
means with all your financial resources. Because if you really love something, you what? You put your money where your mouth is. Otherwise, dentists couldn't make a living. So they argued, means what? With all your financial resources. While the Greek translation says it means with all your physical resources. What is interesting from our point of view is, we have another word which has a double meaning. Apparently meaning from where? From financial resources to physical resources. Because literally the word means nothing more than to give it your all. Okay? I give it my all. What does it mean to give it my all? Could it mean my all my being? Or all my what? All my money. It's an interesting question. Which is more my all? Faster than any question. Anyhow, history of interpretation diverges from that. Now the main question, which now is to be asked is, what is the punctuation after the word me'odecha? If you look in the Hebrew, should, there are two ways of punctuating this. Some put a period, and some put a colon. If it's a period, it's one more sentence. But if it's a colon, it's an introductory sentence. And what follows is an interpretation and a fleshing out of the opening line. Okay? So the more difficult one is to put the colon there. And we're going to try to interpret that way and see if we can maximize the meaning. Those of you who prefer a colonoscopy will go the previous way. Okay? Now that means, if you look at the English, the opening line says, You shall love your eternal God with all your lave, with all your nefesh, and with all your ma'od. How we translate the word lave? From mind to emotion. How we translate the word nefesh? From body to soul. How we translate the word ma'od? From financial resources to what? Physical resources. Okay? Now follow with me in English. The first line apparently fits this theory that this paragraph is interpreting and fleshing out the first line. Why? Because the next phrase says, Set these words which I command you this day upon your heart. So that sounds like a clearly interpretation of what word? With all your heart. Okay? What would be the first thing to love God with all your heart? The first thing is what? Take the word seriously. In English we would say what? Take them to heart. Right? If you love somebody, the first thing you would do is what? Take their words to heart. Good, that would make sense. And once we got that, then maybe the rest will follow. Let's see if it does. The next starts off. Teach them faithfully to your children. Now, well, how do you teach them faithfully to your children? Interesting, right? Well, most people, I say, teach them. What do you do? You sit the person down and you what? Teach them. Now, what it says here is, how do you teach? Well, if you speak of them when you're at home and on your way. See that line there? So when are you exempt from it? At all times. When you lie down and when you rise up. So when are you exempt from it? One is every place and one is what? Every time. Now it's an amazing model of teaching. Because most people think teaching is I instruct you. Here it says, you know how you teach your children? If they see you speaking about these things every time and every place, they'll see what? You really love these things. And when they see things you really love, what do children do if they love their parents? They almost always begin to absorb the loves of their parents. If a mother really loves music and plays the piano all the time, the child begins to what? Can easily appreciate it. If she loves art, or she loves Judaism, she loves Torah, she loves Israel, if she exemplifies that love all the time, it becomes what? 
contagious. Now, most of us people think teaching is by sitting down and instructing. She says, no, teach your children. And how do you do that? Speak of them in your home and on your way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Now the question is, how does that relate to the word nefesh? Nefesh, I said, has a range of meanings from body to soul. And now the topic is what? Children. And it says you should love the Lord your God with all your nefesh. So if I said you should love God with your nefesh, that would be what? Your body and soul. But now you have to give something more than your body and soul, which is an extension of your body and soul. What is the best extension of body and soul, which is not your body and soul? If not what? Your children. What represents an embodiment of you more than what? Your children. In fact, some of us can't stand a child because they what? They express exactly what we are. And we, well, boy. Right? In fact, each one of our children turns out to be what? An alternative combination of my, our what? Our body and soul. Some dimensions we didn't even know we had in ourselves until we see what? Right in front of us. Which is why it's so easy to fall in love with them. Okay? Sometimes. At least before the age of two. Now, be that as it may. So loving the Lord you got with all your nefesh. If I said with your nefesh, I mean what? Your body and soul. Your person. But who is your body and soul more than you? Therefore, I the word with all. Who could be? If not what? Your children who are sometimes the spitting image of you. You know, without the spit. Okay, so now it says here, if that's correct, then to love God with all your nefesh would mean what? I so love what I'm doing, it's contagious. It is so contagious, it becomes infectious. Who gets infected? My children. And therefore, when you really love something, and by this is true, anything you really love, you want your children to do what? To love it. Because one of the nature of love is to share it. Right? The nature of love is to share it. If you love something, you want to do what? You share it. For example, if you went to a terrible movie, oh, is that a terrible movie? I wish you were there. (laughs) Who says that? Right? But people will say, that was a wonderful movie. I had a great feeling. I wish what? You were there to share it. Have a simcha and nobody show up. It's not what? It's not a joyous occasion. It's only a joyous occasion when the people you care about are there. On the other hand, be in mourning or be very sad. And sometimes you want to be what? Left alone? Sometimes. But nobody ever says, what a wonderful simcha. They all left me alone. You don't say it, right? So love and joy automatically what? Becomes inclusive. And if you really love something, you want your children to do what? I can't, I don't think there's a thing in the world that you really love. And if you really love your children, you wouldn't want your children to do what? To share in that love. Exactly what you have here. Okay? Now read on. So now we've covered the word what? By taking them to heart. By including what? Your body and soul, which is more than your body. And so includes whom? Your children. How do you teach them? By illustrating your love for it. If you really love something, what do you do? You talk about it all the time, in all places. When people see how much you love it, and if they care about you, they begin to take seriously what? The things you really love. Now we come to the last one. It says, uh, Bind them as a sign upon your hand, and let them be symbols before or between your eyes. What are we talking about here? This is called what? This is called the tefillin for those who are really into leather. Okay? Now, bind them as a sign upon your hand. So the hand is really what? 
here. But the tefillin is not placed here. The tefillin, according to the rabbi, should be placed here. Fascinating idea. Not here on the hand, but they said on the upper part of the arm. Where on the upper part of the arm? It reflects two things. The muscle and keneged across from the heart. So a hand thing would be a visual thing. But now it becomes what? A physical power thing and an emotional power. I'm tying my physical powers and my emotional power together. Where is the other tefillin? The other tefillin is on the head, right? On the soft spot where the baby has it. Now originally, apparently the tefillin were actually what? Between your eyes. It was a visual experience. I did and I saw it. But now it's not a visual experience. It becomes what? A mental experience. So what am I integrating? I'm integrating now my physical powers, my emotional powers, the heart, and what? My intellectual powers, which really means I'm integrating what? Everything I got. So if I was to give my, all my body, and if, but modecha means with all your might, with all your physical, physical resources, with all your powers, what are your powers? Physical, emotional, and what? Mental, intellectual. And thus you've done. Incorporated with all the powers a person has. Now the other meaning of modecha means with all your possessions. Now you tell me, what is your quintessential possession? What is the possession that represents you more than any other possession? And you care about more than any other possession, if not what? Probably your home. Okay? In other words, if I say to love God with all your possessions, and I have to take one possession, which represents the person, what would be more than anything else? Your home. And therefore look at the very last line. The last line says, right? On the doorpost of your house and on your gates. This is describing what? The mezuzah, which you saw beautiful as you walk into the shul. Now the mezuzah therefore is to the house what the tefillin is to the body. And therefore both are reflections of dedication of. Now it turns out whenever people love each other for some reason they always wear each other's symbols. Used to be on the finger. Sometimes with the ear. Now it can be anywhere. Right? But it's interesting enough, the common denominator, for some reason, people who love each other want to do what? Want to reflect it in their visible symbols. And for some people, the more visible, the better. After all, if I'm going to love you, why shouldn't other people know about it? So something about love, I don't know what it is, that people like to publicize their love. Look at People's Magazine. Oh, no, fact is, don't look at People's Magazine. Okay, so we have here, inscribe them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, if that is correct, the Shema turns out to be a literary integrated unit. By a literary integrated unit, I mean, it's not a series of verses that if you threw them up in the air and they landed in a different place, it would come out with the same meaning. It means there's a connection between the medium and the message. And the order in which the verses occur are integral to their meaning. That makes perfect sense if the opening verse is concluded with a colon, and the opening verse says, you shall love the Lord your God with X, Y, and Z. And then what follows is an exposition of X, an exposition of Y, an exposition of Z. In our case, X stands what? With all your lave. Y stands with all your nefesh. And Z with all your ma'od. And each one of these words are bifocal, in a sense. Lave goes from where? From... My, no, leave from emotion to 
intellect or mind. Nefesh goes from body to soul. And ma'od can be from physical resources to financial resources. Whatever the case is, you're combining it all together. Okay? Now I ask you, what is the master image behind the whole Shema? There's all these are examples of love. But where are they borrowed from? So for example, if I said to you, I know two people. And you know what? Whenever they go to bed at night, they talk of each other. Whenever they get up in the morning, they talk of each other. They wear each other's ring on their arms or on their, on their fingers. And they post each other's poetry on the walls of their house. Besides being Meshugana, how else would you describe these people? You would say they're in love. What type of love? It is not pedagogical love. It is not filial love. Most people don't do that to their parents. Right? It is the, the image here is what? All the images are borrowed from a master image, which is the master image of romantic love. Fascinating enough. So the Shema really is, and there's no love, which is more intense, although rarely as stable as romantic love, as an intensity that no other love has. And almost all romantic love has one element common to it. You want to feel you're giving your all. Not only that, even if you're giving your all, you think what? There's more to give. And you'd like to give what? Even give more than what you got. So a guy says, love the Lord you got with all your lave, with all your nefesh. What more is there to give? But when you really love somebody, you know how you feel? You always feel you want to give more. In fact, it's a great feeling to give more when you love somebody. And you hope what? It will reciprocate and intensify through the path. But love has a capacity of giving, which doesn't ask for what? For return. Now, there may be returns, and the frequent we are. But the act of giving itself becomes self-justifying when it's expressed in the context of love. So here you have a paragraph of the intensity of the human love for the divine. What is it placed after? A whole prayer talking about what? The divine love for the human. So clearly the two work in tandem. And what the liturgy has done is juxtapose a prayer about God's love for humanity as an introduction to the human love, what? For God. And it does it as an argument, because it knows if you are convinced that you are loved, it makes it that much easier to do what? To respond in love. Okay? And the argument is, how do you know that God loves you? Well, if God really loved you, He would teach you how to rule your life. That's what the, what? the Torah is. And if you were to really study it and do it, you'd become convinced that God loves you. Knowing that God loves you, what would you do? It's easier to what? Reciprocate love. Now, when I used to give this lecture, I stopped here. For the last six months, or maybe nine months or so, I thought of another idea. I'd like to share this with you. The question is, what is the nature of love? So in America, we love passive images with regard to love. I fell in love. Right? Or I fell out of love. How do you do that? I don't know exactly. I stumbled into love. I am a victim of love. And Greek mythology helps us out because Cupid is always doing what? Shooting his arrows. And I know, I don't know where they come from, but they what? Hit me right there. What do you want, bad? I love her. Right? As if there was no explanation for it at all. In Judaism, there's an element there which argues that love is sometimes volitional. Meaning, the will to love can play a role in the act of love. And that love is not inexplicable. The fact that you will to love, you can be a contributing factor. 
So a person says, I fell out of love. What he really means, I stopped trying to love. It wasn't worth the effort. Or I didn't want to what? Put in the effort, because love is extraordinarily exhausting. Look at me. Okay? So there's an element in which love is some degree as volitional. Meaning, I can choose and commit myself to love. And by choosing and committing myself, it actually does what? Influences the result. It isn't totally volitional. You get it? There's always in a part which is not. But to argue that we are totally the victims of, or we fall into love, and we are passive, and not some degree active, means I'm not responsible. What do you want from me? I love her. I didn't choose to do so. In fact, I got a song. You made me love you. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it. Right? How many of us use that excuse, we married somebody our parents didn't like? I didn't want to do it. But you made me. Who made me? I don't know, but it wasn't my fault. The fact is, I'm American. I'm not responsible for my ex. Okay? But in Judaism, even the act of love is some degree volitional, which means you bear some degree of responsibility of being in love or being what? Out of love. In that sense, maybe God can actually command love. Who can you command love from? Only somebody that you first have loved. Interesting idea. And that when you really love somebody, and Franz Rosenzweig, the famous German-Jewish philosopher, called this the love of the beloved. Interesting expression. The love of the beloved. That when you really love somebody, you can do what? You can ask that person to try to what? To, now, it doesn't mean it'll work. Right? It never works on its own. But there's an element in which the effort to love and going through the acts of love and going through the motion sincerely sometimes results in what? The corresponding emotion. And the emotion is not divorced from our behavior. Just the opposite. Frequently the emotion flows through the furrows which are created by our behavior. And therefore there's some degree of volitional love in this case. Okay. Now let's go back to the original. The original question I asked you, how does Judaism and Christianity differ on the subject? They both have a common thesis. And I'm not going to quote you the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John says, we love the God who loved us first. Easily, the Gospel of John may have taken what? Straight from the Jewish liturgy. We have no evidence for it, but it's a good possibility. But the thesis is held in common both by Judaism and Christianity. I repeat it again. We love the God who loved us first. Both hold that in common. The difference is, one says he sacrificed his child. Now the question is, what do you do about that? Now when a demand is made upon you, which far exceeds your emotional ability, then you know what kicks in? Guilt. And guilt is the gift that never stops giving said Irma Brombeck. <laughs> but what I mean by guilt is when there's this tremendous gap between where you are emotionally and where the system demands that you be emotionally and when you cannot close that gap, you feel what? Guilty. In Judaism, a very similar thesis is made. But it tells you what the steps are to close that gap. You can make the effort to do what? To study the Torah. It says the more you would study it and the more you would understand it, the more you would appreciate it. What enhances appreciation according to this prayer? Also doing that which is studied. You put the study and the doing together and you have a chance of a greater winning combination and come to the realization that what? That God loves you and you, have a st you, have, you can play a role in the reciprocity of that divine love. In conclusion, look at the first two words in the Hebrew. 
it says Ahavaraba. Now some versions, instead of having Avaraba, you know what they have? They have Avatolam. In fact, I'm going to look at the other version, what appears here. Does anyone know where, the, where it appears in the evening service in the Siddur? Uh, let's see if we have it here. Yes, page 51. Remarkable. On page 51, the similar prayer, not identical, but a similar prayer, instead of saying Ahavaraba with great love or with deep love, it says Ahavatolam, which this Siddur translates as unending love. Which is pretty long, right? Avatalam, unending love. Great translation. Avatalam, much better than the word eternal, which is too abstract. Unending love. So the question was a great debate in Judaism which one should be chosen? One of the fascinating discussions in Judaism, you know how they resolve this? They said rather than create a fight about this, which would split the congregation down the middle, what we'll do is at nighttime we'll say what? Avatalam. And in daytime, what we say? Avarava. Right? You got two fights of the congregation. What do you do? Just divide in two. It's like I told the congregation, the class was this morning, there was a shul not far from here, a couple thousand miles, in which every 12 months they switched rabbis. Why do you think they switched rabbis? Because the congregation can never agree on a certain ritual practice in the synagogue, and they would always ask the rabbi what to do. And whatever he said, he lost what? 50% of the shul. You know what the argument was about? whether you should stand or sit for the Shema. So, let's see. How many of you go to synagogues in which when they say the Shema, they stand? Here, stand. Good. How many of you go to synagogues where they can't stand it and they sit down when they say the Shema? Even in this congregation, you have an 80-20% split. That's not so bad, but I hope you go to a different shul. <laughs> but what happens in the same shul? Could you imagine? Half are standing, half are sitting. And then they reverse. I mean, these ups and downs of religious life. So every rabbi came to that shul. They said, Rabbi, should we sit or should we stand? And whatever the rabbi said, what? He lost 50%. And those 50% then fought to get on the board so they could fire the rabbi and sacrifice him at contract renewal time. So finally, there was a fifth rabbi coming in. And instead of taking the fifth, he said, you know what? What I'm going to do is, I won't tell you, but I think we should follow the ancient tradition of the synagogue. Could you tell me the oldest living person in the synagogue? And the oldest living person at that time was 96 years old. His name was Chaim Yanko, according to the story. And he was in a senior facility. And wasn't exactly all there. Nonetheless, they said that's the best way of resolving it, because we can't pay for the new rabbi coming in every year for a trial position. So what they did is, they had a committee. 50% consisted of the standing people, and 50% consisted of what? The sitting people. And they went to ask him. They both agreed. Whatever he said, they would do what? They would follow him. And resolve this issue once and for all. So they went there. And the people said, standing spoke first. So they went to this man, Chaim Yanko, and said, tell us, what was the old tradition in this synagogue? Isn't it true that we stood for the Shema? Isn't it true we stood for the Shema? And they started yelling. And he says, yeah, yeah, I think you're right. But then the other position said, what? Let us advocate our cause. He said, what are you, your mind's lost? You lost your mind? We all recall we used to sit. What do you mean we used to stand? No, we used to sit. What do you mean we used to stand? We used to sit back and forth. He said, yeah, yeah, that was the old tradition. He used to argue back and forth. <laughs> and of course, they've been doing it what? Ever since. Okay. So in conclusion, there was an island. Not far from Macronesia. But it's an imaginary island. And on it were all the qualities of human life. 
There was, of course, love and sadness and happiness and anger and greed. And the story goes that a storm brewed out of nowhere. And sun was going to engulf the whole island. And they were told to flee for their lives. So everybody looked for boats. And love helped everybody get into a boat. Then love looked around for this own boat and found what? There was no boat left. So she tried to get in somebody else's boat. And suddenly greed rode by in his boat. And his boat was full of gold and silver. And love said, let me in. And greed said, you're all wet. You'll ruin my gold and silver. And you know what he did? Rode right by. <clears throat> then sadness came by. And sadness said, and love said, sadness, please let me in. And sadness says, what do you mean? Your presence would dissipate my sadness. I can't let you in. And she just rode by. Then anger came by. And love said, what? Not anger, let me in. And anger said, I can't maintain my anger in your presence. And he did what? Just rode by. Then happiness rode by. But happiness was so self-absorbed, she didn't even hear the cries of love saying what? Let me in. And so love was on the verge of despair. And suddenly she heard a deep stentorian voice. And it said, love, get in. Love jumped in, grabbed an oar, and rushed to shore. As soon as they reached shore, she jumped out, tied the boat, and turned around to express gratitude to her Savior. But he had already disappeared. Love didn't know what to do. But then she spied wisdom. And it was Father Wisdom. And she ran up to Father Wisdom and said, Who was that who saved me? And Father Wisdom said, Oh, that was time. And Love said, Well, why did time save me? To which Father Wisdom answered, Only time knows the value of love. And thus the prayer says, With unending love. Ah, but we can't do that. We've got to come to an end. So I'm going to share you with something with you. Please take one. Hand it down. So we can help it out. Okay. Uh, give me a bunch of these. You If you look in front of me, <clears throat> okay, I want you to look, it says lecture seven, the Shema, the second blessing. Everybody see it? What I'm going to do for you now is I'm going to give you the whole lecture in note form. On the assumption is people hear lectures, they learn something and say, well, what did he say? Well, he talked about love. What did he say? What do you know? What do I know about love? So, the time will tell, Okay. So the middle says, Lecture 7, the Shema, the second blessing. Everybody see it? Okay. Now, this is called a mind map. A mind map means you first look at the middle first. And then you start looking at the periphery. So if you want to know the subject about, follow the number. See what, at the top, one, then two, then three, then four, then five, six, seven, eight. And what's the last one? Of course, eight is skipped. Nobody noticed that. Nine and what? Ten. See that? One says questions. Ever see the word questions? Okay. So what was the first question we asked? What does it say on the right-hand side? Right. What's the next one say? Okay. Then a third part is, what is the thesis? Then it talks, what is the idea of teaching out of love, which we went through? 
And then we look at another time. Why is there a pedagogical metaphor for love and not a filial metaphor for love or a parental love and love? So it says pedagogical metaphor. Go up to the top where it says metaphors. Then it says expected, what? Mar- marital love or parental love? But which is the dominant metaphor here? <coughs> What's the next line? Pedagogical love. Okay? And then it goes down. Then it talks about the importance of teaching Torah. You see that? And then studying Torah and how we come to the idea. So, for example, look at the very beginning. It says, message. Disclose divine love through, what are the two? And heeding the commandments. Okay? Go in the middle where it says, reciprocation of love. Study the Torah, cleave to the commandments. And then explains, is it like to a wife or like to God? Evidence. Saturated with love. You know why? Because the opening word and the ending word all in with what word? Love. Now move on to the left-hand side. It tells you the thesis. The notions of God and love. We can't summarize the whole thing. Seven is the love theme. Finally, the blessings after Shema. And ten integrates them all together. So that if you looked at here, you would have a mind map. Now turn the page over. There we have a similar mind map with regard to the Shema. Okay? The overview and the question. So look at the questions number two. It says, what does the whole Shema mean? What is the rhetorical structure? And each one will go through the whole thing. So look at number five, which talks about love on the left-hand side. Okay? And then it talks about verse 6-5 of Deuteronomy. And we focus upon three words. Lave. See that on six? Lave. Nefesh and what? Mode. See lave. We have the biblical and the rabbinic. The meanings. Under nefesh you have what? Biblical rabbinic. Under mode what do you have? The Septuagint, the rabbinic, the difference. And all there is charted out for you. And all the way to the very top until you come where? To the conclusions. And work the whole thing through. Now why have I, why have I expounded this for you? Because what I have here is a book called The Hidden Poetry of the Jewish Prayer Book. But it's not a normal book. Because normal books use your eyes. This is an audio book. So what you have is every prayer is on an audio. And each audio is exactly 30 minutes because that's the time it takes you on 4 or 5 in the morning to get from here to Newport Beach. <laughs> At night times, it only takes you 6 minutes. Right? But in the bay, so we have actually 30 minutes. And we did the whole prayer book, the Shema, the Matovu. And after each lecture, it's followed by a mind map. So the mind map you have just there is exactly what you have in front of you. So for example, one is on Matovu. One is on Adonolam, which is said in many synagogues. One is on the Shema. One is on Aleinu. And each one expounds it. Okay? The reason I mention to you, because if anybody's interested, I have order forms for those of you who like to do it. But, even better, if you get a group order, you get 20% off. So if the rabbi coordinates a group order for the synagogue, she can do it. Even better, she could create a class to study the liturgy, because you'd have all the material here. Everybody would listen to it, and you could come and discuss it. If you do that, then we've really promoted the understanding of Jewish prayer, and the focus on love, and I hope from now on, if you ever hear a sermon announced in a synagogue, that God loves you, you'll contemplate the possibility that it came out of a synagogue. Thank you very much. Dr. Rabbi Ruven Kimmelman will take a few questions, but we do need you to speak into the microphone because we are taping this lecture. So if you have a question you would like to ask him, please raise your hand. Uh, let me make, before you ask a question, as I mentioned before, you can either make a question, ask a question, or make a comment. 
If you make a comment, it should be shorter than the lecture itself. <laughs> By the way, even if you don't have a question, inflect your voice upward at the end so I can interpret it as a question and respond accordingly. Yes, please. Uh, Rabbi, I think the reason the synagogue changed rabbis every year is because 50% believe the last rabbi was the best rabbi we were ever going to have, uh -huh. and the other 50% believe the next rabbi will be the best we're rabbi the best ever. Right? Therefore, I sure hope the second group will be right in this show. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Right behind you. Uh, I'm a member of our, this congregation, and this congregation actually did have a question. We had a new rabbi, an interim rabbi, and when it came to the candle lighting, he wasn't used to the congregation standing up. And this has become actually a question at this temple, whether you should stand up when the candles are lit or whether you should sit down. Oh, that you should surely ask your rabbi. <laughs> I met, I want to tell you something. I've met your rabbi twice and I can't hold the candle to her. <laughs> you know what, I just followed the minhag hamakom. <laughs> okay. I'm sure whatever she does will be enlightening. Yes. Where, where was God when six million innocent Jews were killed in Europe? And where were you? I was in this country. That's right. Where should you have been? Sorry? Yeah, right? Where, where, what's your answer? You asked the question, what's the answer? I was told he, he, doesn't, he doesn't appear every place. That oh. was... Oh, that's, okay. You have a better I, answer? I lost a mother and brother in Auschwitz, yeah. and they were innocent Jews. Right. And so sorry, we, we saw they were lost. But my question is, whose fault was it? Not your mother, not your relatives, right? Who committed Absolutely the evil? Not. But who committed the evil? Right? Who committed the evil? I'm saying, the committed, who did it? You mean to tell me six million people committed evil? I didn't say that. I said, who committed the evil? What was the evil committed? The evil was committed by those who murdered your relatives, correct? No, the Nazis, right? Right, as I'm saying, those who murdered your relatives. Am I correct? Yes. Right. So they committed the evil, correct? Who's to blame for the evil that human beings commit? Yeah. Okay, next. Thank you. On the topic of love. Well... I just wanted to come no, up with my answer for that question of where was God. Um, in the Purim story, we found that there were some people who were willing to risk their lives to make sure that the plan didn't go through. My own theory is that there were some people on this earth who should have done something to prevent the Hitler story, and uh, somebody missed. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you. Anything about love or prayer or anything about comparing Christian views yeah. of love and Please, Jewish views here. of love? That was the topic. Yeah, I think the reason that most Jews think of that as Christianity when, they, when you hear the concept that God loves you is that... Is that... In our minds, ah, I have competition, is that in our minds that's very akin to proselytizing, and that's very, dis at least to me as a Jew, it's very distasteful. So that's why I think when we walk by that, we see that as a, it's a Christian thing, not a Jewish thing. No, why is proselytizing distasteful? 
Republicans do it. Democrats do it. Every commercial company does it. Every commercial company tries to persuade you to eat their products. Exactly. Every Republican and Democrat. The only people who find this tasteful is what? Why would it be distasteful? If you really convince something is right, why would you not want to share it? Do you know anybody who's really convinced that something is right and doesn't want to share it? Why would you deprive the whole world of something which you are so convinced that it's right? Well, I guess because our feeling in this country is that it's forced upon you. And I don't well, think that's something else, right? Okay. You, for example, if I discover the polio vaccine, should I keep it in my basement or should I share it? Well, hopefully you'd share it. Right? So if you really think something is valuable, you know what you try to do? Share it. Share it. But you don't what? To foist it upon is issue of force. Correct? Correct? But to make people aware of it, if you really love people, I'm convinced, if you love anybody, you'll share those things you value with them. Therefore, I have a hard time believing that if Jews really loved Judaism, they wouldn't want to what? They wouldn't want to share it. Now, it's a lot different than posing. I agree with you. But sharing? Yep. I have a question that kind of related. I'm, I'm not sure how to ask it or how to raise it, but in the concept of um, the Christian concept of God sacrificing his son for the sins of everybody else, how do you deal with the concept of love in that regard in terms of God's supposed love for his own child? Uh, I'm having a little problem with that whole concept in that regard. Be interested in your you know, kind of... No, I have no problem with God loving her children. I do have a problem making exclusive on one child. I think God loves all her children. So why, 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 make, why make an exclusive on this, right? Secondly, I, don't, I think I find it difficult that God would sacrifice a child, right, as the prime evidence of love. It would seem to me, in my understanding of love, love involves the cultivation of growth. See, there's some types of love which create dependencies that people bring each other down. But really mature love almost always cultivates growth of the other. When you really love your child, you want them what? You want them to grow, and you want them to know more. For example, when you were first had a child, you probably taught them to walk. When you taught them to walk, you made him stand up, correct? And then he took a step towards you. And then you did a very cruel thing, if you did what other fathers did. You took a step backward, and you enhanced the possibility that he may fall, right? But you took the risk, because you know what? For him to grow, he's got to do what? He's got to take that step forward. And by the way, this is really it's even to the Holocaust question. To some degree, if you don't have the freedom to fall, you'll never have the freedom what? To walk. Okay? So what you're doing is you're saying, if I really love my child, I don't keep him in a dependent state. I try to cultivate his growth. And so you took the step back and he did what? Probably followed you. Maybe you fell a couple times. He got right back up what? And stepped again. So in some sense, I argue, I think we all argue in Judaism, that love by God is that what cultivates growth, which is why we use a pedagogical model. Because pedagogy means what? I want to teach you. What do I want to teach you? Increases your capacity for growth. And that's an expression of love. I think over here, yes, two, two there. Seems to me that the Christians... <clears throat> depend on your belief in their way of life in order to know that God loves me. 
for other people to know that God loves them. They, uh, if they're uh, in a cult, they say God loves you, and so do I. But if they're just saying we love God and you should love God too, but you've got to do it our way. You've got to follow our belief in order to be loved by God. And I think that's the difference between Judaism and Christianity. Because Judaism says, if you believe in God, then you demonstrate it by being here in this group, being in the synagogue, where Christians say, do you believe in God? And if so, express it our way. No other well, okay. way. Whatever Christians say, it is clear in Judaism. In fact, the Talmud says on the phrase, you shall love the Lord your God, they interpret it to mean, make the Lord your, your God beloved by the way you treat your fellow man. Fascinating idea. In other words, if you really love God, then you love that which God loves. So the test of the love of God in Judaism is frequently the love of whom? Your fellow human being, yeah. There's right behind you, another question there. Thank you for the comment. Your comment on pedagogical love, why would pedagogy be a sign of love? And I think it's because it's so important to Jews because through so much of our history, Jews always valued education more than the society around them. Oh, that may be the reason they use the example of pedagogy to illustrate love. Could be. I don't know. I actually have several friends of mine who are Christian theologians. And I asked them, do you have this image in your religion that the evidence of God's love for you is that God teaches you? Interesting. Because in the Torah itself, by the way, Moses does teaching. God does commanding. It's only later in the Bible, in the book of Psalms and Isaiah, that God takes on this role also as teacher. So apparently, it's a more mature understanding, even in biblical Judaism, this idea of perceiving a loving God as a teaching God. And it could very well be because a culture which takes education so seriously can believe that teaching is an expression of love. Makes as much sense as anything else. Thank you. Last comment here, then fine. Please. Gloria, yeah. Wait for the glory. The Christian... Um, bracelets that say, what would Jesus do? Is that something, a, a new concept of perhaps doing the, the, the teaching there? Sort of like by example, what would Jesus do? I don't know if you've heard yeah. it. That is, by the way, quite modern. Yeah. Uh, in classical Christian theology, the question was not what did Jesus do, but who is Jesus? You see, in modern Christian apologetics, Jesus has shifted in the liberal church from a deity to a model human being. And if he's a model human being, then you ask the question, what? What would Jesus do? And Jesus probably would do what all his fellow Jews did. <laughs> After all, have you ever heard of a non-Jew being resurrected? Jews have a habit of rising to the occasion. Thank you very much. <laughs>
Thank you, Dr. Rabbi Reuven Kimmelman. Thank you so much for your presentation. We're so grateful to see all of you here. Just an FYI, we offer a whole series of different adult education classes here at Temple Beth David. Then on February 12th, Sunday morning, we'll be offering a session on Jewish views of the afterlife, Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Every month, we have Yiddish classes, lunch and learn, exploring political, topical issues, and Torah studies. And the spring, we'll have some series looking at theories of the exodus from a biblical scholarship perspective. So wonderful to see you all here, and thank you so much, Rabbi Kimmelman, again. By the way, those who are interested in the forums, they're up here.